Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Father, we come to this marvelous expression in Scripture, born of the heart of Jeremiah by the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit, and made all the more amazing because of where we find it. Right in the middle of Lamentations. Father, would You show us why this morning? And help us to understand perhaps better something of the suffering that takes place in this world. Help us to see more clearly what You're up to in all these things, Father. And bless us, Lord, with the teaching of Your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's an iconic American movie moment that I believe most of you have seen. Involving four adventurers and a small black terrier standing in a great foreboding hall, massive pillars of fire and thick red columns of smoke billowing up around a huge bulbous emerald green face wearing those plastic vampire teeth. The Wizard of Oz. And as Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man stand there and and Toto runs around their feet, they look up at this terrifying sight. But of course, the image before them, we all discover as the movie goes on, is not the real Wizard of Oz at all. A terrier, a cairn terrier, Toto, got his teeth into the curtain, over to the side, off to the side, pulls it back, revealing an unexpected little man who's standing there furiously working all kinds of knobs and switches as the faux Oz calls out, Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. In Frank Elbaum's original story, if you've ever read it, the given name of the Wizard of Oz, of this man, is Oscar, Zoroaster, Fadrig, Isaac, Norman, Henkel, Emmanuel, Ambrose Diggs. That's his name. It's an acronym for Oz Pinhead. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Just a little bit of tidbit information there for you. You can use that this week if you'd like. Did you know? Anyway, I want to look behind a different curtain this morning. A, a curtain that is misunderstood. A curtain that in this world we tend to look at images, we look at things, and we see them one way only to discover it is not that way. And the curtain that I want to go behind and draw back is not the stuff of fantasy, it's the stuff of real life. It is the curtain of suffering. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. We talked about when we opened up this book two Wednesdays ago that the book of Lamentations is a house of mourning. Which is perhaps why not a lot of people spend much time there. Because who wants to go to the house of mourning? Who wants to be bummed out? Let's skip over that and get on to Ezekiel and the prophecies and the wheels and all the cool stuff, you know? But the house of mourning is important. It's critical. Solomon says it's better. Because it's there that you come face to face with your mortality 
And you come face to face with the reality of what's behind the curtain. The book of Lamentations has also been called the Wailing Wall of Scripture. For the Jews, that western wall, the place of weeping and mourning and longing, that's Lamentations. It follows on the heels of the destruction of Jerusalem at the close of the book of Jeremiah. And again, rightly so. In his Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah pours out heart and soul and literally comes to the end of himself. And that's what suffering does. It brings us to the point where we have no resource. Nothing that can help us through from this moment to the next. Suffering brings us to the end of ourselves. But in coming to the end of ourselves... We can discover, if we will look, what is behind the curtain. What is the cause of all this suffering in the world and sometimes in our lives? That's what the prophet realizes. But he doesn't realize it, or at least he doesn't express it, until we come to the summit of his suffering. There are five laments in the book. If you haven't been able to join us here midweek, you need to understand. I've got to take you back. These five laments are written to bring us to the summit. But the summit is not chapter 5. The summit is chapter 3. It is the centerpiece of the whole thing. It is the apex. There's far more to the painful poetry of these five chapters than the scrawling of a sorrowful seer. More than just a pained prophet. These elegies are written with a structured Suffering, And we went over a lot of this a couple of weeks ago, and I strongly encourage you to hear this. Because what we see here are five of the most beautifully organized and written songs in all of Scripture. This is the stuff of the highest form of Hebrew poetry. And you need to approach it that way and read it as such and recognize there's more than just someone's gut cry here. These words are written intentionally, they are inspired, they are structured, they're purposeful. From a poetic perspective, Lamentations is written in a chiasmic style. A chiasmic style. What does that mean? It means the five laments share what's called an inverted parallel relationship between them. It looks like this. Chapter 1 focuses on the people. Chapter 5 focuses on the people. Chapter 2 focuses on the Lord. Chapter 4 focuses on the Lord. And the apex is chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the summit of the suffering. It is the focus of the whole thing. So it is written to draw you up and then to bring you back down, but that you land in the middle with the main purpose for these poems, these elegies, these dirges. Here in the third lament, Jeremiah goes behind the curtain. To unveil the reason for all suffering. Not just his own suffering, not just the suffering of his people, Judah. But all suffering involving all of God's people. And the surprising revelation about this, I think, is that when you pull back the curtain, it's not Oz the pinhead standing there. It's not Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian standing there behind this curtain of suffering. It's not, and listen to this, It's not even Satan the adversary, which we are so often tempted to assume when you pull back the curtain of suffering, at least according to Jeremiah here, it is the Lord God Himself who is standing there. It is the Lord who is working the controls. It is the Lord who is, listen, the author of this painful story. Look at Lamentations 2 verse 17. 
The Lord has done what He purposed. He has accomplished His Word, which He commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing because He has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of our adversaries. Jeremiah is absolutely clear as to the cause of the suffering of Judah. As to the purpose behind his own pain. It all comes not from Satan, not from Nebuchadnezzar, not from some other veiled source, but from the Lord Himself. God, You caused this. Lord, You are the source of my suffering. Now follow this through with me, because when he gets to chapter 3, it becomes even more painfully obvious, more clear. In the first 20 verses of chapter 3, Jeremiah, through his own agony, reveals this personal insight. I am the man, verse 1, who has seen affliction because of the rod of His wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely He, against me, He has turned His hand repeatedly all day long. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and with hardship in dark places. He has made me dwell like those who have been or who have long been dead. And you might say, yeah, but Rick, he's in pain. Jeremiah is sorrowful here, so he's just lashing out uncontrollably. No, he's not. As I already told you and we already see, the lamentations are intentionally written. They are structurally sound. They are purposeful verse to verse to express a truth. It's not just about Jeremiah on a hillside going, Oh, woe is me! How can you do this to me? This is sound biblical doctrine that the Lord is teaching through the prophet. Verse 7, he says, He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, He shuts out my prayer. Remember when He did that? Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. The Lord says to Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not either intercede with Me, for I do not hear you. Jeremiah, I am not listening. That avenue is shut down. God had to repeat it again in Jeremiah 11.14 because Jeremiah starts to pray for the people. So God says, I said, I'm not listening. Long about chapter 14, Jeremiah starts to pray for the people again. And in verse 11 of Jeremiah 14, the Lord says, no, 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 no. I am not listening. Because when a people persist in rebellion, there comes a point when the Lord no longer hears their prayers. That concerns me for some aspects of the church. This is Glenn and I were just talking about this morning. Yet another large denomination is caving to the issue of homosexuality within the church and within marriage. And I don't bring this up because I have a big issue. I bring it up because I keep seeing one after another after another major denominations who have, who have long taught the sound doctrine of Scripture completely folding and giving in. Why? Because it's easier. Of course it is. And younger people, listen to me, it is so critical to understand this. The Bible is clear that there will come a time, 2 Timothy chapter 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But seeking to have their ears tickled. They will go after teachers in accordance with their own desires. The Bible called this. 
God said, this is exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get to a point where people are going to want to do it their way, and they may think that their way is right, and their way feels better, and their way seems nicer, but it is not sound doctrine. When I was a kid, sound doctrine meant boring. <laughs> it did. You know, I heard the word doctrine. I, I mean, before the trend was even out, I'm... <laughs> Because I, I would listen to pastors and they'd bridge the word. You know, and it was just so dull. And I'm like, oh, well, doctrine must just be boring. No, doctrine is truth. Doctrine is an anchor. Doctrine is a rock in a very stormy world. And if we give up sound doctrine, and sound doctrine just means the right truth of the Word of God. If we set it aside and say, I know what God says about that, but I really like what man says better. We are in trouble. And according to what happened with Judah, which we have seen in history, Jeremiah says, there came a point where God says, I'm not hearing their prayers. You wonder why people in this culture are knocking on the door of heaven and going, why isn't God answering? Why doesn't God hear me? Perhaps there's a reason. And if we are going to give up the sound word of God, then we are going to give up the right to even be heard by God. Sound doctrine. Well, he told Jeremiah no more praying. Verse 9. He has blocked my paths with hewn stone. Hewn stone, what does that mean? It means stones that fit together so tightly there's no getting by. There's no walking through this path. There's no climbing over or around it. You're stuck. He has made my paths crooked or difficult He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He, note this again, He has made me desolate. He bent His bow and sent me as a target for the arrow. He has made the arrows of His quiver enter into my inward parts, literally my kidneys. This pain has gone straight through me, Jeremiah says. I've become a laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He's filled me with bitterness. He's made me drunk with wormwood. Wormwood is just another word for bitterness. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And Jeremiah's suffering here parallels the suffering of Judah before him. It's also interesting to consider this, and I'm not really going to do it this morning, but you might want to go back and track this through the first 20 verses of chapter 3. Parallels the suffering of another who came after Jeremiah about five and a half centuries later. Because this reads awful close to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. With one exception. One exception, and that's back in verse 4, which says, He has caused my flesh and skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. If not for that one line, I would say this could very very well be the voice of Jesus, but He didn't have His bones broken. That's the one thing in all the sufferings of Jesus that did not take place. And it's another example, and I point it out, because it's another example of the intricacy of fulfilled prophecy. Because that was said prophesied ahead of time 
both in the picture of the Passover lamb, Jesus became our Passover lamb. He took the place of the Passover lamb as the perfect and spotless lamb who makes us white as snow. Numbers 9, 13, or 9 verse 12 decreed that no bone of the Passover lamb could be broken. So when you offer this lamb for sacrifice, God told the people of Israel, do not break a single bone. Why? Well, that's what's going to happen when Jesus is crucified. Not a single bone broken. And that's odd because typically the bones were broken in crucifixion. That was part of the deal. You Bible students know crucifixion is not about killing someone as quick as possible. It's about delaying the death as long as they could. Three, four days of hanging in agony. And then finally, when they had had enough of the agony of this suffering prisoner, the Roman soldiers would come and break his legs. And with broken legs, he could no longer push himself up to breathe, and so he would hang and asphyxiate and die. The Bible tells us, John 19.32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. John says, I want you to be clear on this fact. I witnessed this. I saw that they did not break his legs. Why the big deal, John? He says in John 19.36, For these things came to pass to fulfill Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. That Scripture, by the way, is not Numbers 9, verse 12, but Psalm 34.19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. So in the sufferings of Jesus, that's the only unique difference in these 20 verses is that His bones were not broken. But Jeremiah says, My bones were broken. And he's speaking of this intense pain, this this awful sorrow. But again, more than a song of self-pity. It's more than just whining and wallowing. There is divine intentionality to these five laments. And this is the summit. As we climb to the midst of chapter 3, remember this. Remember, God is the author of Judah and Jeremiah's anguish. God is the author of the sufferings of Christ. Not the Romans. Not the Jews. It was all in God's hands. Remember, Jesus said, If possible, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What did God will? That He would go through the sufferings. This was God's divine intention for Jesus. And Isaiah 53, verse 10, puts a cap on it. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And so I ask you to consider this morning that if God is the author of Judah's suffering, if God is the author of Jeremiah's suffering, if God is the author author of of the suffering of Christ Jesus, is it possible then that God is the author of my suffering? Of when I hurt, when I am in anguish. Wait a minute, Rick, that sounds dangerously close to blaming God for all the world's pains. I've heard that one before. The old, how can a loving God allow such suffering? Well, I didn't say allow. I said author. I've always hated that, by the way, when people say, well, God allowed this to happen for such and such. That sounds so weak. 
He allowed it. He's like, I don't want it to happen, but I'll just let it happen. He allowed this to take place. Look, he's either behind it or he's not. You know? And we need to understand the difference. Let's be absolutely clear, because I do not want to misrepresent God here. I've been praying about that all week. We are not talking about the kind of troublemaker gods of Greek mythology. You know, the gods who toyed with humanity and had fun with it. That's not not what I'm talking about here. And we're not talking about suffering as a legitimate result of our sin. There's plenty of suffering we just bring on ourselves because we have sinned and rebelled against God. And we we suffer the outcome of that. Numbers 32.23, be sure your sin will find you out. And so there's pain and there's sorrow and there's suffering in the world simply because people are sinful. Simply because there is evil and wickedness in mankind and we do evil and wicked things. And there's also suffering that's caused by Satan himself. But that's not the suffering we're seeing here. The sadism of the devil. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I recognize that there is sin-caused suffering and there is satanically-caused suffering, but we're not looking at that. And in fact, Christians, I would caution you not to be so quick to assume that you're under satanic attack. I hear that all the time. Something doesn't seem to work out just right in someone's life, and the immediate response is, I'm under assault. Are you? What if you're not? What if the suffering that you're feeling right now has nothing to do with Satan and everything to do with God? What if he's the one behind the curtain? Well, that's a completely different thing. If you tend to be one of those who who think that you're always under assault, please don't ever forget that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that you are a children, you are a a child, you are children of of the King. We belong to Him. Nehemiah 8.10 confirms that joy. So, all I'm saying there is pray it through before you assume the source, because the one behind the curtain may very well be the Lord Himself. And so you ask, well, why? Why would God be behind the curtain of my suffering? What's the purpose in all that? A few weeks back, we talked about the typical answer. Sanctification. We talked about the concept of being poured from vessel to vessel, being poured out, being emptied of myself to be filled with Him, Jeremiah 48, verse 12, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send to him those who tip vessels. They will tip him over. They will empty his vessels and shatter his jars. And again, we looked at that. That God does use suffering as a way of perfecting us, of purifying us, taking us into the fire to burn out all of the the impure things and make us pure gold. So that is a purpose for it. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, that is salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so sanctification is a reason why sometimes we go through hardship. Why sometimes the Lord Himself walks us into the wilderness, takes us into the place of suffering, that He might purify us and grow us and change us. But that's not the only reason. And in fact, I think there's a bigger reason. And it's something I have not spent much time considering in my life, only really in the last few weeks have I begun to really think about this. 
And to be honest, sometimes the reason of sanctification is a little frustrating. You know, when God's taking you through a hardship, and you go, well, I know He's just trying to sanctify me, but I don't like it. It doesn't make it any easier. You know? Can't you wait and sanctify me next year, Lord? (laughs) There's a bigger issue here. Far more important than your sanctification and mine when suffering is taking place in our lives. And Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Lamentations has been called the resurrection eve of the human soul. I like that. The resurrection eve, Saturday night before the Sunday morning resurrection. That's the book of Lamentations. The resurrection eve of the human soul, for in it the soul weighed down by God's judgments, is nevertheless confident of His unconquerable mercy. Now get this. Because it is here at the painful peak of Jeremiah's lamentation that he comes face to face, not with his own sanctification, but with the character of God. That his suffering causes him to draw back the curtain and see God for who God is. That suffering in its greatest purpose is not about making me better, it's about opening my eyes to see who He is. Now follow this through. Think about this. Verse 21, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. Jeremiah says, It is God's character, not man's, that fills up the empty vessel. It is God's nature, not man's that brings us confidence. It is God's Spirit, not man's, who breathes into us the message of hope. Your sanctification will never fully answer your suffering. Yes, it helps to a degree to realize you're being formed and you're being carved into a a, a better person, a better child, a better follower. That's nice, but it doesn't ever quite get there. Listen to the five-fold character sketch of God again. Five different issues, five pictures here of the nature of the Lord. Verse 22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. It's that Hebrew word chesed. It is the most important word in the entire Hebrew Bible, chesed. And it parallels the most important word in the entire New Testament, grace. It is the nature of God. Chesed, meaning grace, loving kindness. And so the first thing we see in the nature of God here is unending grace. Unending grace. His loving kindnesses, His chesed indeed never ceases. There's never a time when God's grace is not pouring. When God's grace is not relevant. Because if God is present, guess what? So is grace. That's His nature. It is who He is. Psalm 107, verse 43 says, Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses, the grace of the Lord. No other Hebrew word is more descriptive of God's nature than chesed. No other word is more powerful or more prescriptive for our suffering than His grace. 
suffering raises that consideration. You know, sometimes we think opposite. You know, the, the whole issue of the, of the world saying, why do I suffer? Why am I in pain? Why would a loving God allow this? But if you are a child of God, you have a completely different reaction. When you come into the place of suffering, rather than the shaking of the fist, you go, oh Lord, I just need you here. I need your loving kindness. And immediately you step right into the place you're supposed to be. The character of His grace. Isaiah 63, the prophet says, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which He has granted them according to His compassion, and according to the abundance of His loving kindnesses, again, His chesed. And what's amazing about this aspect of God's nature is it runs hand in hand with compassion. Look at verse 22 as it continues. His compassions never fail. Some of your Bibles say, they say, the Lord's um, loving kindnesses never cease. His mercies never fail. The same word there, mercies, compassion. It's the word in the Hebrew, racham. And racham means to love deeply. Do you know there is no one who loves you more deeply than the Lord? No one who cares more about your life, not a husband, not a wife, not a father, not a mother, a brother, a sister, a friend, nobody even comes close to the depth of the love that God has for you. And when I'm in the midst of suffering and sorrow, it is that love to which I turn. I don't even turn to the love of my wife. And she has great love for me. But when I'm really hurt, when I am really in the midst of angst and suffering, I've got to get to a bigger love. And that's the love that God has, and it never ceases. He never turns it off. It is a constant flow. Raham, to love deeply, compassion. Raham has another meaning to it. Womb. Womb. His womb never fails. It's it's talking about the depth, the the, the deeply embedded love of God. The Greek equivalent word is splachna, which means bowels. And the reason why that word womb is used here is it's talking about the bowels of the Lord, the guts of God, the depth of love that He feels. You think you're feeling suffering? When you suffer, He feels it. When you hurt, He is hurting in the depth of of his bowels in his guts. Mark 6.34 says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt splotna, compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He felt it in his guts. In the parable of the lost son, Luke 15.20, we're told that while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him. That is splotna. That guttural sense. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And it's just a graphic way of describing deep-seated emotion. And it reminds me here, gang, and the reason I mentioned womb is it reminds me that in my suffering, God is feeling it and He is birthing something by His love for me. Verse 23 goes on and says they are new every morning. And in the midst of the character traits of God here, that's a great statement, a great comment. New every morning, fresh mercies for today. New grace for today. 
God wove grace into the very fabric of created time. He did it absolutely so when the sun came up and our eyes opened, we could realize that yet again, we can start again. I, I love New Year's Eve, you know, because it's fun and jovial. But I love New Year's Day because there's that whole sense of starting again. I used to love when I was a kid going to school. I used to love September because it was a fresh start. All the grades of the previous year didn't matter. <laughs> now we can start again and take a running aim at it, you know. And that's the idea here. But God does it so that we have this every single day of our life. You wake up, yesterday was a mess, today's better. Today's fresh. Today, God says, You have my grace all over again. My grace and my compassion new every morning. Why are we more amazed by that? Why are we not more stunned when we do wake up that we are fresh and clean and forgiven all over again? This is the wonder of His grace. The failures of yesterday have no hold on the people of God. Isaiah 33, verse 2 says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for You. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation also in time of distress. So even through suffering, you wake and with each new day we can recall to mind what continues to be said in verse 23, Great is Your faithfulness which I think is the hinge verse of all Scripture, and is the sum total of the nature of God. Great is your faithfulness. If you're jotting down notes, we've seen unending grace, unrelenting compassion, and number three, unfailing faithfulness. Unfailing faithfulness. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. God cannot be anything but faithful. He has to be faithful. Why? Because that's who He is. And again, we're seeing His character, His nature. The curtain is pulled back and suddenly all the suffering of Jeremiah falls before the nature of God. Grace and compassion and faithfulness. And what does faithfulness mean? It means He is rock solid. He is unchanging. He is absolutely sure. And even though culture might change... He doesn't. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. That should tell us something when we try and rewrite laws to fit our comfort or our (laughs) desires or our sense of the way that we should go. We are so foolish. And we are yet a nation like every other nation before us doing the exact same thing every other nation before us has ever done. We start to become wise in our own estimation. And we reject the faithfulness of God who is absolutely true. And if we would trust in that, if we would stand with that, if we would go to Him for our understanding and wisdom, He's faithful. But we go wandering off on these rabbit trails, doing our own thing, making our own way, and trying to make it pleasing to everybody, trying to please man rather than pleasing God. But God is faithful. How does that work? I, I told this story Wednesday night. Forgive me, Wednesday night Bible students, i got to tell it again. Because it's just perfect. After the destruction of the second Jewish temple, a group of rabbis with the famous Rabbi Akiva made their way up to Jerusalem in AD 70. It said that they came up to the Temple Mount and they looked at the flattened temple. 
that mess of what used to be there. Completely gone. Not one stone left upon another. And as they got up to the mount, they saw a small fox dart out from under the place where the Holy of Holies used to be. And they began to weep. Except for Rabbi Akiva. He began to laugh. And the rabbis with him said, Akiva, why are you crying? Why why are you laughing? We're crying here. And the rabbi answered, And you, why are you crying? Well, they said, What? Shall we not weep? Indeed, this is a fulfillment of the verse, For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl over it. Lamentations 5.18, by the way. So they saw in AD 70 what Jeremiah saw in 586. The same thing. Darting foxes, critters and creatures on the Temple Mount where once stood the beautiful temple. And they saw that. They recognized the lamentations of Jeremiah. They began to weep. And Rabbi Akiva says, that's why I'm laughing. What? For just as we have seen the prophecies of Jerusalem's destruction come to pass, so too know that the prophecies of her future consolation shall also be fulfilled. And that's the wonder of God's faithfulness, is even when the bad things are happening, Akiva wisely saw that those very bad things were positive proof that the good things to come are going to come. Because God said, Jerusalem will fall. God prophesied this would happen. He explained this clearly. It happened once and it happened again. And Akiva was able to say, based on the proof of the suffering, we know the glories are going to follow. And he laughed. He rejoiced in the hope of a future for his people Israel. And my brothers and sisters, that's the thing about God's faithfulness. And when we come back to the sound doctrine of Scripture, when He says, Behold, I am coming quickly, guess what? He's coming quickly. When the book of Revelation describes what is coming here at the end times, guess what? That's what's coming here at the end times. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to quibble over it. Just read it. And have your joy and your peace in this, knowing what is coming. What do you rejoice in? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your comfort, especially on tough days? Or seasons of suffering? In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called himself a bondservant in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised ages ago. In Titus 2.11, Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our, glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And I love working that verse in whenever I can. Are you looking? Is your joy in the faithfulness of God and what He said is about to take place? That's why we keep our eyes on these things. That's why we talk about the coming of Jesus. Because nothing brings a greater joy to the sorrow now than the glory then. And the promise of His faithfulness, He will bring it to pass. Has He said, the Bible says, and will He not do it? God is not a man that He should lie. If He said He's going to do it, He's going to do it. Great is Thy faithfulness. Verse 24 Then says the next character trait here, the Lord is my portion, 
says my soul. Unchanging inheritance. That word portion means inheritance. Halak in the Hebrew, my share. The Lord's my share. You know, when all things are divvied up, what are you getting? What are you looking for? What's your inheritance? What do you want? We, like the Levites, can say, you know what, we weren't given a land mass like Judah and Benjamin and Manasseh and Reuben and Gad and Dan and all the tribes. We weren't given, you know, Issachar, we weren't given masses. That's not my inheritance. And the Levites were not given any land. It's called, there's no land of Levi. Because the Levites were just put in cities throughout the kingdom of Israel, purposefully, so God would have His priests all over the place. But their inheritance, God said to them, your inheritance is me. I'm your inheritance. Same with us, royal priesthood. Same with believers in Jesus. And in the coming millennial kingdom, you can claim whatever spot you want, but you don't have a landmass. You get to be priests ruling and reigning with Him in His kingdom. And I've already got my bid in in several different places around the world, some beautiful spots. But, but it's not the land. I, my portion is the Lord. My inheritance is Jesus Christ. He's what I am getting out of this. Someone says, Rick, what are you getting out of this whole Christian thing, Jesus? He's all I want. He's all we could ever need. He is our halak, our inheritance. What an awesome realization here for Jeremiah. The prophet stands looking over the literal image of the glory of Israel, Jerusalem. It is, it's the spot, God's city. And it's wasted. It's a blackened, smoldering mess. And he's looking at the image in the image. He's looking at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The place where God met with His people. And it's destroyed. And in that misery, he realizes, God is my inheritance. This is not my inheritance. Jerusalem never was my inheritance. The land is not my inheritance. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. And note that, it's the Lord is my portion, says my soul. What does that mean? It means He gets it in His head. It means the spiritual truth has now downloaded into into Jeremiah's brain and he goes, ah, I understand, I comprehend. He is my inheritance. I've lost Zion, but I have the Lord. Which is why Daniel could prophesy from Babylon. Why Ezekiel will prophesy as we get there from Babylon. Because the Lord is their portion. And it doesn't matter if they're in the center of idolatry or the center of the land of Israel. The Lord. The Lord. He's my inheritance wherever I might be. Are the Kunins here this hour? Probably next hour. They're leaving us. Uh, Scott and Don Kunin. Uh, another military transfer. They're going to Nebraska. So we'll pray them out next Sunday. But you know what? We were talking a little bit last night and they're, they're leaving. And they're already saying, well, we're going to miss our church fellowship. We just love being here. And this comes to mind. The Lord is my portion. And those of you in the military, when you deploy or when you are sent to other places, remember that. The bridge is not your portion. The Lord is your portion. And Jesus, He's the one inheritance nobody can take from us. The world can take any and everything else from me. They can take my freedom. They can take my opportunity. 
They can take away even my very physical life. They cannot take from me my inheritance, which is Jesus. Psalm 73.26 My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Jeremiah ends this saying, Therefore, I have hope in Him. Undying hope. That's the fifth characteristic here. Undying hope. I was so touched last Sunday by what Ava Hoffman shared. I think all of us were. Coming here, adopted from Ethiopia, adopted into the Hoffman family. And she said that the one thing she wanted more than anything else from her earliest days when her life began to go badly and when suffering became more of a norm for her and when she began to wonder where she fit even in the world, she said her earliest thought was, I need hope. I want hope. And then she came to America and her earliest days in America, she kept hearing that word, I want hope. And what really got me as she shared her testimony and literally choked me up last Sunday was when she said, when she saw Mike and Carrie arrive in Ethiopia to pick her up, when she actually saw them, she realized, in her words, God showed up. God came. Now I know Mike and he's no God. But hope suddenly was fulfilled. Hope suddenly rushed in for Ava. And she was able to say, there is a God. And it would be quite a bit of trial from there even to this point in her life. But hope. Where is your hope? Jeremiah 29.11 I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. And Ava wisely said, what is future without a hope? It's hope that I... I knew I'd have future, she said. (laughs) I wanted hope. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, the therefore of our hope is the character of God. He describes all of this as loving kindness, His compassion, His faithfulness, our inheritance. And then He says, therefore... I have hope because of His nature, not because of my sanctification. Note that. It's because of His nature, I have hope. That that is so encouraging to me because I have spent years of my Christian life thinking about this sanctification issue And, and even thanking God through hard times for making me a better Christian. But you know what? The best Christian in the world is still only good enough for hell without Him. And it is His nature and His character that fills me with hope and reminds me that regardless of the foolishness and the failure and the abject sin of my life, I hope in Him and not in myself. That sanctification angle of suffering is important. It's even necessary, but it comes up short. Because the summit of suffering shows us the characteristics of the nature of God. Unending grace, unrelenting compassion, unfailing faithfulness, unchanging inheritance, and undying hope. And by the way, isn't it interesting that there are five lamentations in this house of mourning And there are five traits that we're given of the Lord. As if one for each lamentation. And by the way, the number five is the number of grace in the Bible. 
Are you in the midst of suffering this morning? If your life is hard right now, I would encourage you not to ask the question, why is God allowing or even causing me to suffer? Rather, pull back the curtain and see Him for who He is. You see, that's what happened to Jeremiah. He pulls it back. And in a moment of brilliant clarity, he doesn't get answer for the suffering. He sees his Savior. He sees the Lord. And that is enough. It's only in His nature that we find healing. It's only in His character that we find the cure. Father, I find myself coming around this corner so many times and often not realizing even why. We pray that You would teach us how to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, I keep coming back to that. I find myself praying, let us see You. And I'm not asking for a physical manifestation. I want to know You. And Your Word keeps inviting us to know You. To walk in and understand something of Your loving kindness. To experience and feel Your compassion. To recognize Your faithfulness. To see in You our portion. And because of all this, to have hope. And Lord, I pray for something. Lord, it's beyond me even to express or explain. But I'm asking Holy Spirit this morning that You would just download into us an understanding of how critical it is that we know You and that even in our greatest suffering that You may be authoring that suffering so that we will come to You and know You and find our salvation in You. Jesus, thank You for suffering for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.